Good evening. I'm Anne Marie Slaughter, the Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School. It is my honor and my pleasure to introduce the first woman president of Princeton. introduce the first woman senator from New York, Shirley. <laughs> now I know why Anne-Marie wanted to introduce me. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to join in celebrating the establishment of the S. Daniel Abraham Chair in Middle East Policy Studies, a tribute to the generosity and the vision of Danny Abraham, who is seated with us on the stage tonight. Please join me in recognizing Danny. of the world demanded thoughtful study and inspired public policy, it is the Middle East. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict alone has filled the headlines for decades and given American diplomats like Ambassador Dan Kurtzer, the first incumbent of the Abraham chair, more than their share of sleepless nights. I am pleased that Ambassador Kurtzer who served in both Israel and Egypt between 1997 and 2005, has also joined us on the stage. Our speaker tonight is no stranger to the complex geopolitical issues and pressing human needs that define the modern Middle East, nor is she a stranger to Americans. I've welcomed many distinguished visitors in my time as president, but I cannot think of anyone who are better known than Hillary Rodham Clinton, former First Lady of the United States and since 2001, a member of the United States Senate from New York. Born in Chicago, Senator Clinton is a graduate of Wellesley College, where she majored in political science and Yale Law School, where she developed a lifelong concern for the health and welfare of children. Her best-selling book, It Takes a Village and Other Lessons Children Teach Us, articulates our collective responsibility to give society's most vulnerable members the care and the support that they need to flourish. Senator Clinton has embraced a wide array of other issues since she first entered public life as Arkansas's First Lady in 1978. She has worked tirelessly to improve the quality and the accessibility of American health care. She has been a strong defender of women's rights, both in this country as well as abroad. She has helped to preserve some of our nation's most important historical treasures. And in response to the terrorist attacks on her state, she has been an eloquent proponent of threat-based homeland security 
and military preparedness. Indeed, Senator Clinton is the first New Yorker ever to serve on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and she has traveled to both Iraq and Afghanistan on two occasions to assess the situation on the ground. Our speaker has also paid a number of other visits to the Middle East, most recently in November when she traveled to Israel and to Jordan. The difficulties that this region faces were underscored when she met with survivors of the hotel suicide bombings in Amman and attended a memorial service for slain Israeli leader Yitzhak Rabin. As Senator Clinton told an audience last spring, events in the Middle East are absolutely critical to our hope for a safer and more secure world a world in which every nation is free from the threat of global terrorism. I am delighted that Senator Clinton will discuss her thinking about the Middle East with us tonight, and I ask you to join me in giving her a rousing Tiger welcome. Thank you very, very much. I'm especially pleased to be here with President Tillman, and I want in the beginning to dispel a myth. President Tillman graciously hosted my daughter and I when we were on the proverbial college tour. She was not yet president, but a distinguished professor and scientist, and showed us around this absolutely beautiful, welcoming campus. Fast forward, and my daughter decided to go to Stanford. And I heard there were those who questioned then-Professor Tillman's ability to give a tour. <laughs> and I want to say right here and now, Shirley, that if Princeton had been on the West Coast, as far from Washington as you could get, there might very well have been a different outcome. But your presidency has continued the tradition of maintaining Princeton's sterling reputation in so many areas here and around the world. And tonight's occasion is but another example of that academic excellence. I also want to thank Dean Anne-Marie Slaughter for inviting me way back last year and giving me the chance to come and speak with you on this occasion. I am a great fan of the Woodrow Wilson School and all that the school does to challenge, train, and inspire a new generation of leaders and public servants. And I thank you personally for lifting your own voice again and again in support of human rights and the rule of law. 
I'm here this evening because I am fortunate enough to know as friends two extraordinary men whom the Princeton community will soon know as well. And it is a great honor that I was asked by Danny Abraham to be part of the formal announcement of the S. Daniel Abraham Chair in Middle East Policy Studies. Danny Abraham has been an extraordinarily successful businessman, an entrepreneur in the great American tradition. But he was never satisfied with just the accomplishments that business success could bring to him and his family. Instead, he devoted himself over many years to the cause of peace in the Middle East. He likes to say that since 1998, he has traveled more than a million miles for peace. And I am sure it's true. I've traveled some of those miles with him. It's also remarkable the distance that other people have traveled because of Danny's mission. The minds that have opened, the new ideas exchanged, the hope for peace renewed. He is publishing a book, which I think uh, may actually be available starting today, called Peace is Possible, outlining in very personal terms the extraordinary efforts that one man devoted to Israel, devoted to the pursuit of peace, has made over so many years of trying. And there could not be a more appropriate choice to fill this chair than Ambassador Daniel Kurtzer. He has had a stellar career serving our country. Ambassador, of course, as we've heard, to Israel and Egypt. But three decades in the Foreign Service, in addition to a brief but distinguished tenure in academia. I hope those of you at the Woodrow Wilson School and here in the broader Princeton community will come to know Dan Kurtzer and his wife, Sheila. Dan is a consummate diplomat, a charming host, but a razor-sharp intellect, someone who has given a great portion of his adult life to living out the best of America's values and vision for a partnership in the Middle East. When Daniel Kurtzer joined the Foreign Service, few people believed that Israel and any Arab state could ever make peace. Fewer still could have imagined that an Orthodox Jew could be a central part of that peacemaking, much less a well-liked and respected ambassador to Egypt. When I visited Egypt during the Clinton administration, Dan was my host there. And he remarked one day what a difficult time he sometimes had compiling a minion in Cairo. But it's a tribute to his skills that I don't think he ever missed getting it done. For more than 30 years, he has exploded expectations and pursued his passion for peace and kept the faith that it was possible. And that is the title of Danny Abraham's book, Peace is 
possible. As we gather this evening, we should count our good fortune in having two such dedicated leaders. But it is within the tradition of the Woodrow Wilson School, which, as you know, is celebrating its 75th anniversary. Think for a moment what a feat of imagination it was to establish a new academic program dedicated to public service and internationalism in 1930. Our nation was sliding into the Great Depression. The world order of the 1920s, the first great era of globalization, was giving way to isolationism and aggression that led inexorably to World War II. But the school's founders looked beyond the crises of the moment to the principles that they believed should guide America in the future. And they were right to do so. We cannot be fixated on the immediate without doing damage to the future. How best do we plan for that future, make the investments for that future? That's what the founders of the Woodrow Wilson School were concerned about. We need that kind of vision and leadership with respect to world affairs today. This, of course, is not 1930. This is a time of tremendous global dynamism, economic as technology transforms the way we do business everywhere, political as more and more people choose their own governments, social as societies come to terms with very rapid and sometimes threatening change. We need today what the Woodrow Wilson School founders had 75 years ago, the ability to hold fast to our core principles and to rise with new solutions to the challenges of our time. We need the founders' understanding that a stronger America comes from strengthened bonds with other nations. And we need something else that the Wilson School has always had, a commitment to competence and common sense over ideology and partisanship. We need this new vision and leadership for America's leadership. We cannot lead the rest of the world if we do not have a vision of where we are headed. And if we do not summon our leadership, not just based on our military strength, but the strength of our values and our ideals as well. We need new vision and leadership in the global fight against terrorism. Instead, we are still drawing lines on Homeland Security Department organization charts. We need instead to be building lines of defense and alliances against terrorist groups overseas. We need new vision and leadership in the struggle to keep deadly weapons out of the hands of rogue states and terrorists. Instead, we have outsourced over the last five years our policies with respect to North Korea and Iran. And we have missed opportunity after opportunity to buy or dismantle nuclear materials that the Russians and others still have. We need new vision and leadership 
in the domestic and global economy. Instead of piling up historic levels of debt and ceding fiscal sovereignty to foreign capitals and foreign bankers, we need to restore fiscal responsibility, regain that fiscal sovereignty which gives us leverage with the rest of the world. We need to reverse the decline in funding for scientific research and promote science, math, engineering, and technology education. If we want to keep America powerful, we have to keep the strength of American production and American intellectual property. We need new vision and leadership on energy security. Instead of an energy policy that provides more and more tax subsidies to oil companies whose profits have soared exponentially, we need once again to be a country committed to a great and grand goal, a Manhattan or Apollo project that helps us pioneer the cleaner and cheaper forms of energy and conservation and recognizes our responsibility to help stem global warming. We need new vision and leadership in dealing with so many parts of the world. In Latin America, poverty and inequality are putting democracy's promise in doubt. In Africa, where the administration put forward a big new aid program and never fully funded it, we need to redouble our commitment. In Asia, we have to face squarely the competition that we will have with China, hopefully in a peaceful way that will maximize their development and create centers of stability in the world. And we have to have greater cooperation, creating new international alliances, treaties, and conventions to deal with the challenges and dangers that confront the entire world, whether it be a potential pandemic such as bird flu, the continuing spread of diseases like HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis, or so many of the others that we read about on a daily basis. Perhaps nowhere is the need for that vision and leadership greater than in the Middle East. Princeton scholars will be writing for years on the implications of the events of the last weeks and the weeks to come. I will not try to preempt that historical analysis tonight. Instead, I want to talk about the values that should govern America's engagement in the Middle East, and then how we can succeed or fail at putting those values into action. The values are straightforward, shared by most Americans, whether they have spent a lifetime studying the region or, like most of us, learning about it, through the headlines, or in some personal experience. They include our enduring friendship with Israel, our firm commitment to the security and well-being of our own people, our friends, and our allies, and a belief that dreams of democracy and human rights are ones that America can and must help make real. The security and freedom of Israel must be decisive and remain at the core of any American approach to the Middle East. This has been a hallmark of American foreign policy for more than 50 years, and we must not, dare not, waver from this commitment. 
As President Truman first recognized, this commitment was forged by the horrors of the Holocaust. But it has endured because of the strength of the unique relationship between the American and Israeli peoples, a relationship based on shared values that predate either of our nations, values that are rooted in the Judeo-Christian ethic, values that respect the dignity and rights of human beings. Like many, I've thought about this a great deal recently. I know that many of us have sent our prayers to Prime Minister Sharon and his family as he fights to recover from a stroke, a devastating stroke. But how many democracies could carry on so steadily with such an important election campaign at such a time? And how many, if any, non-democratic regimes could continue? When the history of this period is written, I believe Prime Minister Sharon will be remembered for his lifelong commitment to Israel's security and his own remarkable journey that led him to the conclusion that Israel would be best served by creating the unilateral disengagement from Gaza and the separation of the Israelis from the Palestinians. But we will also remember and admire the strength and stability of the state of Israel and its people at such a challenging time. More broadly, human freedom and the quest for individuals to achieve their God-given potentials must be at the heart of American approaches across the region. The dream of democracy and human rights is one that should belong to all people in the Middle East and across the world. Everyone who suffers under an oppressive regime, everyone whose future is stunted by ideology or religious fanaticism, every single man, woman, and child deserves our support and the conviction that they too can have a future of freedom and prosperity. There is no racial, religious, cultural, or other barrier that prevents people from dreaming of and even craving individual freedom. This is something that Americans across the political spectrum agree on, that we must stand on the side of democracy wherever we can help it take hold, not just with speeches, but with support that helps real people take charge of their own lives. Now, that is not always easy to do, and we have not always lived up to our own values. But we have a history of continuing and trying to do so. One of the keys to helping people in the Middle East move in the direction of greater freedom, democracy, the rule of law, respect for human rights, involves the very simple but profound recognition of the humanity and dignity and the capacity of girls and women. Or as we used to say way back in the 20th century, women's rights are human rights. I remember speaking out against the mistreatment of women by the Taliban in Afghanistan in the 1990s. 
It wasn't an issue that demanded a lot of attention in our country because it seemed so far away and even disconnected from the everyday concerns of Americans. But that particular country, serving as a haven, which it did for al-Qaeda and the Taliban, struck at us with fury and hatred. And part of the ideology behind that fury and hatred was a belief in the inferiority of women. So it gives me great personal satisfaction to see how far women have come, including a woman being the top vote-getter in the recent Afghanistan election. A remarkable feat. And yet I have no illusions about how difficult the road ahead lies for the people of Afghanistan. And I hope and pray that America does not walk away from this commitment prematurely. Elsewhere, women have gained the right to vote in Kuwait and Bahrain. Morocco has given women equal rights in family law. And women of every faith and ethnicity have braved frightening conditions in Iraq to be leaders, activists, candidates, teachers. Even in Saudi Arabia, there has been the stirrings of change. More than a year ago, my husband spoke to a business conference in Saudi Arabia, and at his insistence, he said he wouldn't come unless women were invited. Well, they were for the first time, but they were segregated by barriers from the men. And when Bill spoke candidly about the importance of giving women more rights in Saudi Arabia, he was greeted with a burst of applause from the women's side of the room. There were a few brave souls joining in on the men's side. But then a year later, there were elections, Chamber of Commerce elections, but nevertheless elections in which women for the very first time ran as candidates. These are values that we as Americans must continue to support and advocate for. But as we turn to the region's immediate and pressing challenges, we have to be conscious of the humility that is necessary in the exercise of power. We can agree on our values, democracy, freedom, women's rights. We can agree on our goals that America has a role to play in furthering that vision, but we have to approach that enterprise with humility. And we have to be willing to analyze and hold accountable the policies that we pursue. It will not further our common goals or our American ideals if we veer away from evidence-based decision-making substituting instead ideology and arrogance. Any discussion of the Middle East or really any part of the world requires that Americans educate ourselves and understand the cultures with which we are dealing in order to be successful in advocating for these common goals and values. Nowhere is that more important than in the greater Middle East, and particularly with respect to the Israeli-Palestinian situation.
When I was last in Israel in November, I met with the Prime Minister and I expressed strong support for the leadership that he and his government showed in the very difficult disengagement from Gaza. After my visit in November, Prime Minister Sharon took another courageous step by creating a new centrist political party, Kadima. Just this morning, I met with Shimon Peres, another of Israel's founding leaders. And one of the issues I discussed with him was not only the upcoming Palestinian and Israeli elections, but also the need to provide economic opportunity for the Palestinians to help raise their standard of living, to give them some belief in the future so they do not fall prey to the blandishments of the extremists. In the aftermath of the Gaza withdrawal, there was hope that future further progress could be made in the future in the negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. But of course, the Israeli withdrawal is only one part of the equation. I also met with the Israeli Defense Minister and the Israeli Defense Forces Chief of Staff. They both expressed great concern over whether the Palestinian leadership would be willing and able to crack down on terror unless and until the Palestinians assume responsibility for policing Gaza, for ending terror, and providing meaningful governance, a peaceful solution will be difficult, if not impossible. The Palestinian people are well known throughout their diaspora for their success. Academics and business leaders professionals of all kinds, and the Palestinian people deserve a better future. To recognize just how damaging the terror has been for them, and to accept responsibility for ending it must be a first step. To show that they are capable of removing the power of the terrorists in their midst and cracking down on the suicide bombers and engaging in a meaningful dialogue with Israel. The elections to be held by the Palestinians will, in the best case, lead to the emergence of a responsible, capable leadership that can rise to these security challenges. That is really what is on the ballot, whether or not the Palestinians are capable of creating an effective government and moving away from explicit and implicit support for terrorism and forward toward peace and stability. What is not on the ballot and cannot be put into question is Israel's right to exist and exist in safety. These two elections in Israel and among the Palestinians are turning points. No more excuses for the Palestinians. They have to demonstrate clearly and unequivocally their commitment to a peaceful future, and they have to also demonstrate their ability to deliver services to their people. Now, the rest of the world stands ready to help. There is capital waiting to invest in Gaza. There are economic opportunities 
coming from Europe, the Middle East, the United States, and Asia. But no one will invest in a place where kidnappings are becoming more common, where tribal feuds have taken over daily commerce. And if we can send one clear message to the current Palestinian leadership, it must be that it is in their interests, not in Israel's interests, not in America's interests, but in the Palestinians' interests, to begin to govern and take responsibility, as any government must. It's especially important because this has been and remains a dangerous neighborhood. Instability in Lebanon, problems in Syria, terrorist attacks in Jordan, dissent in Egypt, and of course, Iran and Iraq. The new president of Iran has made a series of incendiary, outrageous comments questioning the Holocaust, calling for Israel to be wiped off the map, even hoping for the death of Ariel Sharon. Now he is moving to create his own nuclear reality in line with his despicable rewriting of history. He has walked away from international negotiations with Europe. He has announced Iran's intention to defy the United Nations and broken the seals on nuclear facilities to resume the enrichment of uranium that could be used for nuclear weapons. I believe that we lost critical time in dealing with Iran because the White House chose to downplay the threats and to outsource the negotiations. I don't believe you face threats like Iran or North Korea by outsourcing it to others and standing on the sidelines. But let's be clear about the threat we face now. A nuclear Iran is a danger to Israel, to its neighbors, and beyond. The regime's pro-terrorist, anti-American, and anti-Israel rhetoric only underscores the urgency of the threat it poses. U.S. policy must be clear and unequivocal. We cannot and should not, must not, permit Iran to build or acquire nuclear weapons. In order to prevent that from occurring, we must have more support vigorously and publicly expressed by China and Russia and we must move as quickly as feasible for sanctions in the United Nations. And we cannot take any option off the table in sending a clear message to the current leadership of Iran that they will not be permitted to acquire nuclear weapons. Part of the problem that we confront with Iran today is, of course, its involvement in and influence over Iraq. We continue to lose brave young men and women nearly every day in Iraq. It was my honor to visit our troops in Afghanistan and Iraq 
I have met with them and their families all over New York, at Fort Drum, and in New York City, at Walter Reed Army Hospital. And I know how brave and committed they are to their mission and how well they are fighting in extremely difficult circumstances. As I have said before, there are no quick, no easy solutions to the situation we find ourselves in today. The long and drawn-out conflict this administration triggered consumes a billion dollars a week, involves 150,000 American troops, has cost thousands of American lives, and many seriously injured returning American service members. I do not believe that we should allow this to be an open-ended commitment without limits or end nor do I believe that we can or should pull out of Iraq immediately. If last December's elections lead to a successful Iraqi government, that should allow us to start drawing down our troops during this year, while leaving behind a smaller contingent in safe areas with greater intelligence and quick-strike capabilities. This will help us stabilize that new Iraqi government. It will send a message to Iran that they do not have a free hand in Iraq despite their considerable influence and personal and religious connections there. It will also send a message to Israel and our other allies like Jordan that we will continue to do what we can to provide the stability necessary to prevent the terrorists from getting any further foothold than they currently have. One cannot look at the Middle East today and not believe that there has been progress against great odds. Former sworn enemies of Israel are recognizing its existence are even talking about ways of increasing trade, commerce, and diplomatic relations. The unilateral disengagement from Gaza changed the map and created a new presumption about who was responsible for the future well-being of the people of Gaza. The current leadership of the Palestinians has been rhetorically quite supportive of the relationship with Israel and the hope that there could be a renewed peace process. But words alone are insufficient. And it is tragic that with all of the talent and ability of the Palestinian people, it was so stunted for so long at creating the leadership necessary to lead a, this future has been very hard to find. The United States plays the central role as the guarantor of Israel's security, but also as the guarantor of a better future for the Palestinians if they will join in creating a stable, peaceful situation. 
In Danny Abraham's book, Peace is Possible, he goes into great detail about his personal contacts with generations of Israeli and Palestinian leaders. He comes out of that as an optimist. He comes out of all the disappointment and the heartbreak, the rejection, the stupidity that so often marks the actions that are taken, the evil, the hatred. He comes out of all of that an optimist. He does so because he has an overwhelming belief in the importance of peace for the state of Israel, which he loves and has devoted so much of his life in serving, but also for the Palestinians, who he has also grown to love. Optimism, some believe, is a peculiarly American virtue that we by dint of belief in the face of nearly any calamity, find some reason to be optimistic. I used to think when I was First Lady that the complaint about Americans having no sense of their history may have been misplaced. Yes, of course, we're doomed to create it, but it also gives grounds for optimism if you have no idea what happened before. I remember so many times having the obligatory first lady tea with the spouse of a leader from a country and talking about matters of mutual interest. But on several occasions, when I would say just to make conversation, well, how are things in fill in the blank, the country of the woman I was with, and how are things? I sometimes got a conversation that began in the 10th century. Ever since the Crusades, it's never been the same. <laughs> History can be like a yoke around a people's neck. History can blind, blind you to the possibilities that lie ahead if you're just able to break free and take that step. History has weighed heavily on the Middle East. What we have tried to do over the last 30 years, starting with President Carter, moving through other presidents, including my husband, now this president, is to send a uniquely American message. It can get better. Just get over it. Make a decision for hope. Make a decision for peace. Create a new reality. We are criticized for that attitude because to many it seems naive, dangerously so. That's why we have to combine that optimism, that idealism, with a strong strain of realism. It is not idealism or realism, as some of the foreign policy commentators would have you believe. 
You cannot be one and the other. You must choose. That's not the world we live in. That is not how America has been successful. We have a duty to combine both. The idealistic aspirations that we hold out for all people with a realistic assessment of how best we can contribute to the journey they must make on their own to realize that for themselves. The question for the United States and the question for people of goodwill in the Middle East as well is whether at this moment of great challenge and peril we are able to look at those core values and move forward with hope and optimism. Sometimes it is easier, or at least it seems easier, to grab hold of our fears and stay right where we are, dug in, immovable. But the history of the Woodrow Wilson School, founded on the best of what was right for America at a moment when so much seemed to be going wrong for America, reminds us there is a better way. President Woodrow Wilson, one of the best reasons to be a Princeton fan, once said that America lives in the heart of every man everywhere who wishes to find a region where he will be free to work out his destiny as he chooses. Daniel Kurtzer and Danny Abraham know exactly what President Wilson meant. For 75 years now, the Wilson School has been training men and women to help keep that America alive and strong at home and strengthen that flame of freedom wherever it burns or could burn around the world. I believe that the Abraham Chair and its first occupant will do much to help build a new generation of scholars, leaders, and peacemakers who share those strong values and combine them with smart, pragmatic, realistic leadership skills. The Middle East and the United States have never needed both more. I look forward to seeing the fruits of your labors here at this school with this new chair. I thank you for coming out tonight in the midst of finals. I don't mind at all being an excuse for procrastination. <laughs> but I can't keep going too much longer without fear of being blamed for whatever may befall you if you do not go back and study. So let me thank you again for the great honor of being with you tonight. Thank you all very much. Princeton's informal motto is Princeton in the nation's service, 
and in the service of all nations. Although you went to Wellesley and to Yale, <laughs> nevertheless, your career embodies that motto, service to the nation and to all nations. You educate us and you've inspired us, and we hope that you will come back often. Thank you very much. I would like to request the audience just to please stay in your seats uh, until the stage is cleared. Thank you.